I promise we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Hebrews chapter 10 is our passage once again today. Hebrews chapter 10. We introduced the chapter last week and uh, didn't quite get through it all. We'll be uh, returning to uh, chapter 10 again here this morning. We're still in verse 1, getting ready to look at verse 2 because there's an important counterfactual that's given in verse 2 that we have to lock in on and realize. In fact, I think it's one of the foundational battles that we struggle with today with our lost culture that we live with. And you'll see what I mean as we get to this point. But there is a minimalization of the cross and uh, the Bible says that's unthinkable. The idea that the cross of Christ is not necessary, is unthinkable. It was absolutely necessary. It's the whole point. The consummation of the ages from Alpha to Omega was one sacrifice for all time. By one sacrifice of Himself at the consummation of the ages, He has made perfect those who draw near to God through Him. And so we want to make sure that we are faithful in our proclamation of the gospel message. Before we get started, let's ask our Father for His blessing upon our time that He would set aside our distractions and humble us to receive the word implanted, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the blessings we have to assemble together. And Father, we are the recipients of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And beyond those ultimate blessings, Father, come experiential blessings in time, including this morning. Father, the blessings are multiplied on this day as we are blessed to assemble, we are blessed to study, we are blessed to fellowship. The blessings will continue even beyond this hour, Father, as we uh, partake of a a potluck dinner and, and fellowship even more. But Father, we commit to you everything that is said and done, the thinking behind every word, might everything be held captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. For it is His most precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. Celebrating our Savior, I tell you, it is uh, a glory. And we just finished singing, yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. And if it's not about Jesus, what are we doing? He is the celebrity of the universe. And so we want to be faithful in our testimony concerning Him. We introduced chapter 10 last week, dealing with the law as a shadow the law not only as a shadow but containing a shadow. The law since it has a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. And that expression, the good things to come, is an expression we've seen before. And so when he re-employs that term, when the author of Hebrews re-employs that term, it's deliberate. It's bringing us back to the focus on Christ and why Christ is so superior to the law that He fulfilled. We, we read in Hebrews 9.11 that Jesus appeared before the Father in heaven as high priest of the good things to come, right? Those good things. And so it's spotlighted there. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He wasn't doing that in the earthly tabernacle. He wasn't doing that in the replica. And uh, remember the pinnacle of, of the approach to God's holiness in the replica was one man one day a year. And when he successfully accomplished that, when he stood before God and the Shekinah glory of God, he was representing the Jewish people, all 12 tribes. He was representing the covenant nation before a holy God and he was accepted 
for that year. And then he, when he, he had to turn around and go right back out. All right? We have only, he never did, no high priest, not Aaron, not Eliezer, not, not any of his descendants. Uh, there is no Aaronic high priest that ever passed through the heavens to stand before the glory of God the Father. The replica could only take you so far. And but when Christ uh, died on the cross and rose again from the dead, he, as- he ascended to the Father's right hand, not the earthly replica. He stood before the Father. And that's what we see here in 9-11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. So we have that language. Jesus appeared before the Father in heaven as high priest of the good things to come. Those very same good things. Mosaic law was a shadow. Mosaic law had a shadow of the good things to come. And that's slightly different. I think there's more development that needs to go into that. Because a lot of times we see that the shadows were Christological, the shadows were pointing ahead to the person of Jesus Christ, whereas the substance is Christ Himself. And that's true as far as that goes, but there's more to be said beyond that. Because Christ Himself appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, the very good things that law had a shadow of. So there's more to it than I think the simplicity of how we say it sometimes. So uh, Jesus appeared before the Father as high priest of the good things to come. Mosaic law had a shadow of the good things to come, but not the substance. And as I put it on the screen, it's the substance image. The word that's translated as image or as substance is actually the icon, is the image, okay? the image. So as we read it, not the very form of things in verse 1. The law says it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form, substance, image. That's the word there where we have icon. And it's, uh, it's curious to me. Some of you guys have a, have a Catholic background or if you have a, maybe an Orthodox background or other, other branches of Christendom uh, really stress the icons, right? In fact, uh, we're going to Ukraine in, in uh, May. I tell you, iconography is, uh, is huge in the Orthodox Church. Icons everywhere, and, uh, which is unfortunate because what they call icons and what they've used for 2,000 years as, as prayer aids and other, other things in their worship, what they call icons, the little tangible expressions of the saints, uh, is, is unfortunate because the Bible itself speaks of the iconography of our priesthood. And the iconography of our priesthood is the substance of the reality of you and me standing before God the Father in the Holy of Holies in the heavenly temple. That's our iconography. And we're all saints. We don't have to have, uh, you know, they pass around trading cards like we pass around uh, Pokemon cards or uh, magic, uh, magic cards or other baseball cards or whatever, you know. So you're swapping out your favorite ball players with other baseball cards. They have saints on their cards. And the saints on their little cards, like baseball cards, uh, that's their, those are their icons, uh, plus things in the churches and, and so forth. Anyway, the Greek word here is the icon, is the, is the uh, image, the very substance of things, not the shadows, but the substance. And that's how we worship. It goes on to say they never, those good things, the good things that we have, the good things they could never get to, the good things the law could ever provide include, this was last week's message, perfection. In fact, apart from us, they would never be made perfect. But we have perfection in Christ. By one sacrifice, He has perfected for all time those who draw near. We have perfection. They never could get there, not under law. Uh, We have the good things of a cleansed conscience. That's going to come up again this morning from verse 2. 
because those worshipers, even though they were cleansed ritually, even though they were cleansed in, in the under law, they still had consciousness of sins. They still had consciousness of sins. Whereas we have the grace provision that allows for us to no longer dwell on our consciousness of sins. And we'll talk about that this morning. Perfection, uh, good things include perfection. Good things include a cleansed conscience. Good things include a living sacrificial service. We walk as living sacrifices. We serve the living God in ways that no Old Testament saint could under Mosaic law. Good things also include a confident nearness. Law was just the opposite. <laughs> law kept people at a distance and uh, to varying degrees and various distances depending on your earthly birth. Uh, and uh, our requirement is not an earthly birth. Our requirement is an indestructible life. And praise God, we have that indestructible life. The same qualifications our Savior has for His priesthood is the qualification we have for our priesthood, the power of an indestructible life. And so we have a confident nearness. We also have a transformed image from glory to glory. We just sang that in the hymn too. From glory to glory. That was the 2 Corinthians 3.18 reference. That uh, What a blessing to, to study it, to read it, to digest it, and then to sing it. As, uh, as it gets communicated in our hymnology. All right, moving on then to verse 2. We have an otherwise, an otherwise, an if but not, okay? So those sacrifices, those same sacrifices, since the law is a shadow of the good things to come and not the substance, the law can never, I don't care how many years go by, how many thousands of years and days of atonement can pass? All of them put together can't do what Jesus did in His once and for all sacrifice. Those same old, same old sacrifices can never make perfect those who draw near. Okay? Otherwise, now we're going to talk about the otherwise. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Otherwise, see... Had they been able to perfect those who draw near, if that could have happened, then it would have happened. And if it would have happened, then they would have been out of business. They would have stopped. They would have said, okay, we're done now. We, we've done it. Clearly, that didn't happen. Clearly, they didn't stop themselves by some kind of a successful offering that said, okay, we've done it now. Here we go. They stopped because Jesus came and did what they could not do. That's why we don't have animal ritual today. That's why we don't have the, the death sacrifices today. Because Jesus died once and for all, and now He ever liveth. So we live in the newness of life today. But still, it's worth asking yourself the what then question. The, we call them second class condition ifs, the uh, counterfactuals, they're not true. But if they were true, here would be an effect. Here would be a consequence. Okay? Like uh, if I had not become a pastor, I would have become a homicide investigator. That was, my, that was my goal. See, I wanted to be a homicide investigator by age 30. And um, well, okay, it didn't happen. All right? Didn't happen. So, and, and I don't know that it would have happened. There's a lot of times when we kind of daydream and imagine about the should have, would haves, and could haves. We, we like to think that would have happened. But, you know, God only knows for sure. And uh, God might be gracious enough to tell us when we get to heaven, oh, by the way, <laughs> that plan you had, because that, would, that would have been a train wreck. That would have, you know, you'd have been on your fourth marriage. You'd have been, a, you know, a drunk somewhere. 
Um, he says, but I got you out of that. I made you a pastor and I gave you Sharon. I gave you all this stuff. So, because uh, God knows what he's doing. God absolutely knows what he's doing. He also knows the what ifs. Every last what if that we, uh, we think we'd like to know. And so uh, this is what we deal with here. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. There would have been a benefit to them. And we've got to stop and slow down and say, wait a minute, this is a, be- this is a real benefit, but it's a benefit to us. This is a benefit we have. We don't often think about it that we are not supposed to have a consciousness of sins. We do, and, and when we do, that's wrong, that's a problem. We should stop that and say, wait a minute, okay? I want to be aware of my sins so that I can confess them and be back in fellowship, but I don't want to be absorbed in a, in a consistent awareness of it, a continual consciousness of it, okay? In other words, I want to have it in the back of my mind, not the front of my mind. I want to have it... Uh, you know, when the reminder comes every now and then, I, I deal with it, I confess it, and then put it back to the back of my mind again and just keep, keep looking to the Lord, keep moving forward. I don't want to have it in the forefront of my thinking. That's the conscious awareness of sin. And that was actually a problem for Old Testament believers. They were reminded again and again and again of their sin. All right. So the counterfactual logic is inescapable. Mosaic law sacrifices would have ceased had they not been shadow ritual. The point is they would have ceased had they not been shadow ritual. The fact is every time they killed an animal, it was a shadow ritual. It was pointing forward to a substance. It was pointing forward to a reality. And by the way, if they didn't get teaching with it, then all they were really doing was just prepping dinner, right? All they were really doing was just butchering an animal, throwing it on the grill, and then eating when it was done, okay? But when they had the doctrine, when they had the teaching, when the priests and the Levites were teaching them the substance that the, that the shadows pointed to, then they could fellowship with the, the priests and the Levites, they could fellowship with one another, they could fellowship with God. That's the, the whole function of the, of the uh, the dining that they would do with the priests and the Levites. All right. So the sacrifices would have ceased had they not been shadow ritual. <clears throat> That's one of those would-haves. And God knows with certainty it would have stopped if, if one of those rituals had been effective to, to perfect humanity, then they would have stopped. The high priest would have said, okay, we did it. And then, uh, you know, could have gone to the Lord and said, all right, what now? We did, we did all that. We're good. The fact is, shadows could never get them there. If it could have, it would have. But it didn't. All right. Some of these two, by the way. If you want more on this, uh, we talked about it last hour. We've talked about it in different classes. Um, the, uh, the whole rebuke when Jesus told the cities of Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida, he says, if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. So why don't you guys repent? You know, why aren't you guys responding to the personal presence of, of the Word made flesh, of God the Son walking this earth? They wouldn't. They didn't. But Sodom and Gomorrah would have. And uh, that's pretty, uh, pretty convicting. Mosaic law sacrifices would have ceased. And more than that, take it to the next step now. What's the next logical step? 
Mosaic law sacrifices would have ceased and the consummation of the ages once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ would have been unnecessary. It would have been unnecessary. And that's a big deal. That's a very big deal. If those sacrifices could have perfected humanity, then the cross would have become unnecessary. And and the moment you start to wrap your mind around that, theologically, when you get to there, when you get to that consideration that is there a sense that makes the cross unnecessary? Is there a, a sense, is there an attitude, is there a doctrine or a way of thinking that makes the cross superfluous, unnecessary, that denigrates the cross of Christ? Careful, careful, careful. When those doctrines, those concepts, those attitudes, that thinking is dangerous. That thinking is evil. That thinking is blasphemy. The idea that the cross is nullified, the cross is made void, that the cross is not necessary. When the cross is called the consummation of the ages, it's called the pinnacle, it's called the, the, uh, that, that, that moment, okay? And so I want to maybe stress that a little bit here this morning because attitudinally I think we encounter this a lot. We encounter this a lot in our culture because we're surrounded by pluralists. We're surrounded by a bunch of, uh, you know, God-hating Bible skeptics. We're, we're, we're uh, surrounded by, even among professing Christians that I think are just as God-hating and Bible skeptical as the, the, the non-Christians because attitudinally they're on board with the, uh, the pluralism. They're on board with the moralistic therapeutic deism. If I'm giving you terms this morning you've not experienced before, look them up. Moralistic therapeutic deism, that, that's what passes for Christianity in much of today's circles. Matthew 26, 39, you'll see what I'm talking about. Matthew 26, 39. And in, in all these passages we have to ask ourselves, is the cross of Christ necessary? And if we make it unnecessary, how dangerous is that? How evil is that? How blasphemous is that? So Jesus goes into the garden to pray. Actually, they left the upper room. They went for a walk. They ended up in the garden, staying one step ahead of the soldiers that were trying to arrest him. They finally tracked him down to the garden and caught him there. But um, he gets Peter, James, and John to come with him to pray. And then, of course, they keep falling asleep. But he, he, um, in verse 20, 37, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Remain here and keep watch with me. Can you grow so sorrowful that you just die? That the sorrow of your soul actually terminates your physical life? I think you can. And if Jesus is expressing this as a danger, that he's on the edge of physical death by virtue of the soul grief that he's enduring, that's dangerous. <laughs> I mean, if he drops dead the night before, he can't go to the cross. All right. And then he prays. He went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Recognizing that it may not be possible. 
recognizing that asking the Father for what the Father cannot bring about or chooses to not bring about is really reflecting where his agony was at this moment. When he says, not as I will, but as you will, he's confessing the fact that his humanity has a will that's different from the Father's will. His humanity has a preference. Now, he never acts on it. He admits it for what it is, but he doesn't act on it. And so it never, it never crosses into a negative volition or into a sin. But nevertheless, it's there. He has a will. He has a will that says, uh, plan B would be better, Right? He has a will that says, is there anything besides the cross? And then he says, no, your will be done. Your will be done. Because Jesus, when he says, not my will, that's that's anything but the cross. Anything but the cross. Your will be done. And so there are no options. There is no plan B. If the father chooses to spare his son, consequences then being, we don't get saved. The angels, uh, the fallen angels, the elect angels, the uh, fallen man, there are no elect man at that point. If, uh, if, if Jesus doesn't go to the cross, if the consummation of the ages is never consummated, you know, that's the consequence of the Father not going through with the program. So it's very evil. It's absolutely evil. And um, so he goes to the cross because there are no other options. And that right there is everything you need to know about the pluralists of today that tell you that, well, just be nice, be a good person. Good Muslims go to heaven. No, they don't. Or good Hindus go to heaven. No, they don't. He who has the Son has eternal life. He who does not have have the Son will not see life. The wrath of God abides on him. Even the nice ones, okay? Nice pagans are still pagans going to hell. And so when you substitute the moralistic therapeutic deism whereby the prime imperative, the prime directive, by the way, is be nice. And if you are nice, if you're a good person in their definition of goodness, uh, if you are nice, if you are tolerant, if you are accepting, if uh, you, know, you embrace that whole mindset, they, th- they say you're okay. I'm okay, you're okay. All right, how about John 14, 6? I'm not building a theological conclusion on one passage all by itself. It's the weight of every passage combined that, uh, although one is sufficient, all the passages combined become undeniable. John 14, 6, I named two of my daughters after this verse. And I only have two daughters. <laughs> if I could have had a third daughter, then uh, I could have had a, a Hadas. Thankfully, Hadas is an ugly name. I wouldn't name a girl Hadas, are you kidding me? Hadas, Hadas, what a terrible name. But Aletheia and Zoe, we have truth and life, okay? So Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's one way, the only way. I don't apologize for that. I get hated for it, we all do. You'll get mocked for it, you'll get hated for it. But it says what it says. You either defend the Scriptures and stand on the truth or you compromise and I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that for the world. And so this too, if this is wrong, if this is not the case, if this is an untrue statement our Savior is making here, then who needs the cross? If there are multiple ways, even if there's only two or three ways, even if there's only one alternative to the cross, one alternative to the cross makes the cross unnecessary. 
All it takes is one alternative, and the cross is unnecessary. And if the cross is unnecessary, then we are denigrating the celebrity of the universe. And we are denigrating the infinite price that God the Father paid when He gave His Son to be our Redeemer. And Scripture doesn't allow us to do that. Faithfulness to the Scripture doesn't allow us to do that. Romans 8.3. Romans 8.3. Verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That, that seems like a one way to me. Are you in Christ Jesus? Or are you in Adam still? Are you dead in your sins? If you're in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. Everywhere else has condemnation. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. The one and only way He could do it, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. The one and only way it could be done. Are you going to minimize that? Are you going to tell me it's not necessary? No, the law couldn't do it. If the law could do it, the law would have done it. And then God could have saved His Son. All right. So now, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We don't have to be law keepers because we're in Christ. Christ kept the law. Christ fulfilled the law. Requirements are fulfilled in us. Just walk in grace. Walk in Christ. You don't have to be a legalist. What a waste of time. Walk in grace. The requirements are fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. How about 1 Corinthians 1.17? Are you convinced yet? Have three passages done it? Did the first one do it? Any one of these is sufficient. But I like the expression that's used here and I use it a lot. Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Wow. Who would, you know, want to make void the cross of Christ? Even incidentally, even accidentally, even through negligence on our part. Paul said he might do that if he was, if he got too clever, right? Too clever by half. If he gets too... uh, if he gets too cute in his uh, terminology, right? Goes a little overboard with his pulpit alliteration, maybe. <laughs> well, just stop and ask yourself, wait a minute. Are you feeding your flock? Are you giving them something they'll remember? If it edifies, use it. But don't make the cross of Christ void. Don't, don't intrude upon what God's doing. Don't make so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. That's a scary expression, especially since it's Paul saying he might be the one doing it. So I got to ask myself, could I be the one doing it? Yeah, we all could. So what do I do? What could I do in my daily life, in my conversation with others? What might I say or do or think that would make the cross of Christ void? (laughs) Well, how about if I tell a sinner that God's okay with her sin? What if I tell an unrepentant sinner that, well, it's okay, love is love? What if I, I mean, there's a lot of things I can do attitudinally, verbally, in my thoughts, in my words, in my deeds, that will make the cross of Christ 
void and how dare I? That's, uh, there's judgment for that. If this passage isn't scary enough, Hebrews 10 is even scarier. Okay, so let's go to Hebrews 10, 29. And that gets us right back to Hebrews 10. How about that? Clever. All right, Hebrews 10, 29. Now here's a warning. This is the final warning passage of the five dominant warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And it's the scariest of all of them. Because we have our intimacy, we have our access, we all get to enter within the veil. Verses 19 through 25 is glorious. It would be great if the chapter could end there, if the book could end there. Just 19 through 25 is a, is, a, is a thrill. But then comes the warning in verse 26. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, if you want to be a church-age believer priest that just lives defiantly of the doctrine you've been taught, look out, Okay? Because even Old Testament believers had fearful wrath poured upon them for the willful defiant sins. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What are you going to do? What are, we, what are you going to do? What's left to be, to be done? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. The hand of God's judgment on your life in time because of your willful defiant sin. The fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Now you're not an adversary, but you make yourself to be an adversary in your willful defiant sin. Friendship with the world is enmity towards God. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's the consequence. How many times? I'm reading through the law. Okay? Death by stoning, death by stoning, death by stoning. Probably 90% of the time. Occasionally, you you know, you would burn a witch. But most of them is death by stoning. And it's death, 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 death. Not loss of salvation, but physical death. Same thing here. What's our judgment? Terrifying. The temporal hand of God's discipline upon us in time. It's not loss of salvation. It's judgment in time. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So the facts are clear. You're guilty. We've got two or three witnesses. Grab the stones. (laughs) There's no mercy. Not under law. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve? Now it crosses. Now it's giving us the ratio. Old Testament was rough enough. What do you think we deal with? What is our accountability in the church age? Because we're a heavenly people. We are baptized into union with Christ Jesus. We are permanently indwelled with God as the Holy Spirit. We are, they were without excuse. We are, how much more? Doubly more? Ten times more? A thousand times more? How much more? Well, now you've got to get into theoretical math where you can start to calculate infinity. <laughs> how much more, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Yikes. Okay? I thought the term in Corinthians was scary enough when it said the cross of Christ was made void. To make void the cross of Christ, that's, that's language I don't even like talking about or thinking about. 
This is worse. Trampling underfoot the Son of God. That's how the Holy Spirit inspired the text. Stomping on our Savior. And has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Well, yeah, I know. He died. He saved me. But come on. (laughs) And I'm going to do my willful, defiant sin. I'm going to insist on my will be done, not thy will be done. I'm going to be in defiance before my God despite the fact that Jesus went to the cross to pay for my sin. How dare I? Regarding as unclean the blood of the covenant? Seriously? Unclean? It's like looking at a lamb and saying, eh, that's not spotless and blameless. I bet I need a better sacrifice. Looking at the blood of Jesus Christ and saying, eh, that's, that's, that's not all, it's not all that. It's not everything. It's, wait a minute, how am I even thinking that? How am I even saying that? Trampling underfoot the Son of God, regarding as unclean the blood of the covenant, and insulting the Spirit of grace. Insulting the Spirit of grace. How dare you? And this is where it's just become so unthinkable. This is where when I talk to folks, in fact, legalistic believers that got grace hang-ups or believers with, um, that don't understand eternal security that got grace hang-ups. <laughs> and, and here's where it hits them. Their grace hang-up hits them because they think because you and I defend eternal security and you and I defend grace, that we excuse any sin in the book. They think that we're some kind of libertines or we're some kind of uh, easy believism type sinners and whatever. Are you saying to me you can kill somebody and still go to heaven? <laughs> yes. I'm telling you that any sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ because every sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ. But that's not going to justify me going out and killing somebody because I'm going to go to heaven anyway. What kind of carnal mind thinks that up? All right. Our, our understanding of eternal security is not licensed to sin. Our understanding of grace is not licensed to sin. If you have a grace hang-up and you're all wrapped around what you've earned or deserved, then you're back to the first part of this verse with how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve? And right there we can just stop and say oh wait a minute thank you lord (laughs) what a blessing that the holy spirit put the word deserve in that verse thank you lord because you and i don't deal with what we've earned or deserved you and i all we all deserve the lake of fire and praise god we're not going there we deserve it but jesus took what he didn't deserve so that we don't have to okay So when you're answering that what will he deserve question, just remember we're objects of grace. We want to continue to be objects of grace. And walking in grace means we don't trample God's grace. We don't uh, insult the spirit of grace by perverting grace. What what, uh, Jude says is turning the grace of God into licentiousness. That's a perversion. And so uh, we're not going to trample underfoot the Son of God or insult the spirit of grace. And this is the culture we live in because this is what is done constantly. Absolutely done constantly. I had a Facebook post the other day celebrating Jesus. Uh, imagine that because it was Easter and Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. 
And um, somebody posted on my wall and, and said, uh, you know, there were other prophets besides Jesus, you know. You know, like, why do you keep making a big deal about Jesus? Well, I'm glad you brought it up. Okay? Let me tell you about Jesus. Sure, there were other prophets, all kinds of prophets. Real prophets and false prophets. But even among the real prophets, there's still one and only one that was God in the flesh. There's still one and only one that that created everything else. The I am of the universe. There's one and only one. You know about all those other prophets? They're dead. And they stayed dead. Our, our prophet died and rose again on the third day. He didn't stay dead. He now ever liveth. So it's a big deal. <laughs> okay? And uh, when we name the name of Jesus, yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. All right, so we have this counterfactual logic. Now, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because, let's go to the consequence now. Having once been cleansed, and this is now true for us, not for them, but for us, this is true. Having once been cleansed would no longer have had consciousness of sins. Now we've got to unpack this because I think this is something we don't consider. Understand what this verse is saying and start living it. Because what was not true for them is true for us. The the difference between covering sins and taking away sins, the difference between what they had and what we have has very real uh, practical effects in in your Christian walk. Covering sins, that was atonement or pre Calvary salvation, what we call Old Testament salvation was a covering. The kafar atonement was a covering, not a removal. Leaves an ongoing conscious awareness of those sins. Leaves an ongoing conscious awareness of those sins. And we see it throughout the Old Testament. I'll give you two good examples of it here this morning from Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. As it says in Hebrews 10 too, would no longer have had consciousness of sins, but clearly they do. And in those sacrifices, verse 3 says, there's a reminder of sins year by year. Every single year, here we go again, every single year, Passover, Pentecost, trumpets, atonement, booths, all the festivals that they had to go through year after year after year. Okay? In fact, are they still going through? No, no, they're done. The Jews are still... uh, uh, Passover was the same week as Easter, but, but they have eight days and we, we get done in one. The, uh, but the, the Passover, every single year, here we go again. Day of Atonement, here we go again. We are the covenant nation, the Jews speaking, we're the covenant nation, but we're sinners. How do we approach the holiness of God? Well, Day of Atonement, the high priest can represent them and stand before the Shekinah glory. But next year, all over again. Reminder, reminder, reminder. We're a covenant nation, but we are an unholy people. We are an unholy people. The difference then between Old Testament and New Testament salvation or post-Calvary salvation, taking away sins. That's different from just covering them. That's different from just covering them. See? I just put a cover on something. If I take my church bulletin and I, I put a cover on the uh, 
Projector remote control, there we go. Okay. What did I do? I put a cover on the projector remote control, but it's still there. Okay. It's still there. When class is over, I'll be able to turn the projector off because I didn't do anything with the remote. I just covered it. I covered it so I don't have to look at it. I can't look at it. Nope, don't see that. It's covered. It's still there though. That's the point. Which is why when an Old Testament believer died, they didn't go to heaven. They're still sinners. Their sins were covered, not removed. And so God created a little compartment in Sheol, called it paradise, called it Abraham's bosom. And that's where the righteous would go because their sins were covered, their sins were not removed. They still were saved, they still had eternal life. They had living human spirits, but they couldn't be in the presence of God's glory with covered, unremoved sin. Taking away sins, that is post-Calvary salvation, provides for, and here we go, the cessation of such conscious awareness, the cessation of such conscious awareness. And I hope we can all describe this carefully enough to where we can recognize what we're talking about with conscious awareness. Consistent, forefront of your thinking, overwhelming, absorbed thinking of our sins. We shouldn't have any of that ever again. And eventually we'll get to the point where we never remember them at all. But that's going to be once the tears are wiped away and the former things are wiped away and then we get to the new heavens and new earth. We won't remember even in the back of our mind ever again after that. All right, so let's start with this conscious awareness, this ongoing conscious awareness of those sins. Um, Because I think Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 address this very well. I think we can see it in other passages and other illustrations. Sometimes you get reminders of your sins based upon the babies that were born nine months later. And then the... uh, (laughs) And then you get other reminders of your sins for years after that and raising them up. Um, but in Psalm 32, David is crying out for this. David would love for this to be the case. And yet he knows that what he experiences is, is inferior to something that would be better. And even if he doesn't know exactly what it is because the church is a mystery and, and, and the glories of what's yet to come have not been fully exposed, he still can testify to certain things being great but something else still lacking, if that makes any sense. All right, Psalm 32. It's a psalm of David, a masculine. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So we start right there. This is the rejoicing of an Old Testament believer from the frame of reference of having his sins covered. He's saved. The sins have been atoned for, kafar, atonement. His sins are covered. And with covered sins, there is a happiness. This is the asherah happiness blessings. So how happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is is covered. From an Old Testament standpoint, it's great to be saved and it's great to be in fellowship. It's great to be forgiven. How happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity? Because again, it's a substitutionary atonement. It's uh, the fact that our sins are imputed to a substitute. 
In the Old Testament, they were imputed to an animal substitute as part of the animal ritual, which is why they never took away sins. Not until Jesus went to the cross and the sins were imputed to him. All right. So how happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. So we're saved and we're being transformed. And so with a living human spirit, this is a description of a believer in fellowship, but it's from the Old Testament standpoint. Covered, not removed. Verse 3 then, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. When you decide you're going to delay your confession, when you decide, okay, yeah, I, I did it, but uh, I'm going to get my money's worth for this, this sin, right? I'm going to, I'm going to, all right, I'm out of fellowship anyway. I might as well get two more licks in when I pound the snot out of this guy I'm mad at or whatever. No, you've sinned. Stop it right there. The Holy Spirit's convicting you. Confess it right there. Because the more you prolong it, the more you're going to have to confess. And then the more that um, judgment you come under. The discipline you come under, particularly the delayed confession, makes it even worse. The delayed confession makes it worse. All right. So uh, consequences through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. All right, forgiving, there there are distinctions theologically between forgiving the sin and forgiving the guilt of the sin. And so when David finally got to the point that he was going to confess this, you'll notice you forgave the guilt of my sin. Salah. All right, so there's that. Over to Psalm 51. Notice the conscious awareness of sin. Psalm 51. And, okay, so I put on the screen verses 1 through 19. That's the whole thing. That's that's all of Psalm 51, all right? And we're we're doing good by the clock this morning, so we can take a look at this. All right. Um, For the choir director, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, that's not just a publishing blurb. That's not just a little helpful hint that was thrown in there by the Lockman Foundation or the publisher of your modern English text. That's actually verse 1 of the Hebrew manuscripts. And then what we have of verse 1 is verse 2. Most of the pre- many, most of the prescripts in Psalms are versified in the Hebrew Bible. And a lot of times that's why the Hebrew Bible is one verse off from the, uh, from the English Bible in the, in the verse numbers. All right. But this is when he had gone into Bathsheba. We know the story. And we know that he uh, stayed unrepentant and unconfessed for nine months until the prophet Nathan was sent to him at the birth of that child and exposed it for what it was. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Now that is a marvelous wish prayer coming from, the, from an Old Testament frame of reference whereby you know that sin is covered 
But here he's asking for it to be blotted out. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So there is a conscious awareness. It's always there. It is ever before me. That awareness of our sinfulness ever before me. Now, this is true when you're carnal, but it continues even after you're forgiven. The guilt of your sin is forgiven, but the conscious awareness is still there. You still have ongoing effects of that sin that are going to impact whether you can take part in Passover or Day of Atonement or what have you. All right. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's important too. You think he sinned against Uriah? (laughs) He cheated on Uriah with his wife, but it was a sin against God. God's the only absolute standard of righteousness. There can be earthly offenses against human beings, but not sins. Against you and you only have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. We're all sinners in Adam. We're born as sinners in need of a Savior. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. In the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He's craving this. But I don't believe Old Testament spirituality necessarily gives him this. That there are confessions, there can be temporal forgiveness, but the washing and cleansing is a Levitical procedure and the Levitical procedure has no washing and cleansing for adultery or for murder. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. (laughs) What were the wake-up calls David had during these nine months? What were these wake-up calls? And you think back with hindsight and think, wow, he warned me two times, three times, five times. The grace of God kept warning me. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Now to take away or to blot out, to remove, to cast in the depths of the sea, Those are all wish prayers for a prophetic eschatological future because the present reality for any experiential believer in the Old Testament was to cover the sins, to cover the sins, not to remove, not to blot out. All right. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Does David have a clue of what our church age blessing? No, he doesn't. But he's voicing things that we take for granted. He's voicing things that we, in the church age, are universal. Beholding Christ, uh, old things have passed away, behold, new things have come. And David's begging for this. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You and I don't have to worry about that. We will never lose the Holy Spirit. We have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit as a church age believer priest in Christ. In the Old Testament, though, man, very few even had the Holy, the Holy Spirit to start with. And then some, like Samson or Saul, some of the faithless losers, uh, would forfeit the Holy Spirit and uh, be done with their ministry for the rest of their life. And David said, I don't want to be that. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. In other words, give me the positive volition I don't have right now. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. If nothing else, Lord, do you have any use for me? Do you have any ministry for me? At least I can warn others about adultery and murder and all these things. See, now some people, uh, you know, they don't want to have ministry to whatever. They don't want to have ministry to sinners because then they might know that they used to do those same things. And, and in pride, I want to kind of not let them know that. Well, in love, you want to save them from the, what you used to be doing, right? Don't you? All right. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, and the guilt of my salvation. And here it is again, the guilt of my sin. The guilt of my sin. It's one thing to have the sin forgiven or covered, but then there's the guilt of the sin. That's a separate deliverance. And he's crying out for it. But Hebrews 10.2 says law doesn't give it to him. And even in this chapter, law is not going to give it to him. There's no uh, Levitical procedure that's going to do this. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. You know, those that have been forgiven much, boy, they can love much. Boy, and then they do. You know, I can see David crying and wiping the Lord's feet with his tears like that woman in the Gospels because this is he's been forgiven so much. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. David is admitting what's, what Hebrews 10.2 is admitting, that Mosaic sacrifice cannot take away sin. Mosaic sacrifice cannot cleanse the conscience. Mosaic sacrifice cannot do what the work of Jesus Christ on the cross did and does. You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. Jesus will be quoting this. Jesus will say, sacrifice and burnt offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Jesus goes to the cross to do what the sacrifices and burnt offerings could not do. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And this is what David's praying for. This is what David's anticipating. And if David could even imagine or dream of a day or stewardship that you and I function in, in in the body of Christ. Everything he's dreaming about and praying for and begging, we take for granted. It's our normal existence in Christ. And he's pleading with God that, oh, it could be a circumstance for him. All right. Well, there's Psalm 32. There's Psalm 51. Post-Calvary salvation, on the other hand, is a taking away of sins. And I didn't put it on the screen, but in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, and Jesus comes to be baptized, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All right, so put John 1.29 on your notes. It's not on the slide, but John 1.29. He's the Lamb of God who takes away. It's not just simply the idea of a covering of an atonement that just puts a covering over it so you can't see it. There you go. Can't see it. But it's still there. All right? The Lamb of God takes it away. What a difference. Post-Calvary salvation provides for the cessation of such conscious awareness. 
And this is where I want to kind of be careful because I think a lot of times we fail in this regard. I know I do. I think a lot of people do. A lot of times we dwell on failures and we're wrong to do so. We dwell, we take our sins and we put them in our conscious forefront of our thinking and we're out of line every time we do that because the Father doesn't do that. He put them in a bag. He threw them behind his back as far as the east is from the west into the depths of the sea. Now, every now and then we can, we can take a warning. And I think that's the difference between the front of our thinking and the back of our thinking. Every now and then we can have a moment where we recall a past failure and we go, oh yeah. And then that momentary recollection is a blessing for us to do what? To shove it to the back even further and say, all right, and fix our eyes on the Lord. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. Don't take the occasion where a memory comes up, right? Uh, whatever, okay? Whatever triggers that memory, whatever. And then it comes up and then what do you do? You say, oh, you know, let me think about that. And then you just dredge it to the front and you uh, beat yourself up over it for the next hour, month, year, okay? What are you doing? What are you doing? All right the cessation of such conscious awareness. And I think there's other passages that address this idea as well. Let's look at Psalm 103. Psalm 103. And I, and I don't think we're going to be perfected, uh, perfectly able to do this while we're still in this body. I think in the resurrection body, of course, we'll have a greater capacity to consciously forget things that we don't want to ever remember again. Because God, that's, it'll be like God. That's what God does. So in our resurrection body, we will have the capacity to consciously forget the stuff we don't want to ever again consciously remember. But in this body, we've got the built-in reminder called the old sin nature. And the old sin nature that lives in this body is very happy to, to poke you, you know, and say, hey, remember this? Hey, remember this? Hey, remember this? I suspect most of the things we remember, it's not even us remembering it, it's our sin nature remembering it and throwing it out there to our, to our soul, to our, the conscious facet of our soul and trying to bug us with it. So the next time our sin nature keeps doing that, just flush it. Take every thought captive and don't deal with that on those terms. All right, Psalm 103, another Davidic psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, bless all that is within me, bless His holy name. Um, down to verse 12. Let's see here. He's a righteous God. Verse 6, the Lord performs righteous deeds. He made His way known. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. I love verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Praise God. Even when we're getting what we deserve, we're not really getting all that we deserve. We're getting some mercy blended with our discipline. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far He has removed our transgressions from us. Now this is the design. This is the plan. This is the intent. This is positionally speaking, in the plan of God, this is what God hopes to accomplish. This is what God does accomplish. But He doesn't do it through Mosaic law and Levitical sacrifice. 
So how can he say that? How can David write this psalm? How can David write about the sins being removed as far as the east is from the west when experientially, under Mosaic law, they never had that realized? Not personally, not nationally. They simply had it covered as God looked forward to Calvary. And yet it's spoken of. It's spoken of ideally. It's spoken of as a present reality when ultimately it's really it's a millennial uh, prophecy. It's an eschatological fulfillment that he's anticipating in this psalm. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. See, God's smart. He's not dumb. He knows what we're doing. He knows we're just these pathetic dust creatures. <laughs> pathetic dust creatures in His image though. Struggling with sin, falling short, confessing and walking on some more. He's mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. Yeah, it's pretty for now, but I'm not going to live long. All right. There's so much more in this. How about um, uh, Micah 7, verse 19? Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. All right. I don't turn to Micah very often. And we should. Micah's the prophet that told us about Bethlehem. Micah told us a lot. And in Micah 7, we have um, that great song that, that Jacob sings every now and then. My favorite of all the, all the special music. He will again have compassion on us. Let's see, who is like you, O oh God? Who is like you? You know, those people and their gods, us and our God, no comparison. And uh, yeah, they will come trembling out of their fortresses to the Lord our God. They will come in dread. Well, that's obviously prophetic. That's not hadn't happened yet. It can't happen until Jesus comes and conquers. But they will come trembling out of their fortresses. They will come to the Lord our God. They will come in dread. They will be afraid before you. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? So from an Old Testament standpoint, that's as far as it goes. He pardons and he passes over. But there's so much more beyond just passing over. How about getting rid of it? How about removing it? passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he, he delights in chesed, the unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. That's what Israel looks forward to eschatologically. But that's what you and I have now in Christ the past completed reality that our sins are removed. They're gone. We have a cleansed conscious cessation of conscious awareness of sins. 1 Corinthians 6.11 I go here a lot. 
with different people, especially the crowd that thinks you can lose your salvation or the crowd that struggles with uh, the grace that saved us. So it's a nice reminder. Verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. All right? Or if we didn't hit your sin yet, just write your sin in there. None of those guys will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Okay? And so here we go. So what's the answer? Get saved. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Whatever you were before you came to Christ, you are now a saint in Christ. The whole point isn't stop fornicating, stop sinning, stop adultering, stop thieving, stop. The whole point isn't that you used to be a sinner, now you're going to work hard to stop sinning. No. You used to be a sinner, now you're a sinner saved by grace. Okay? And you may sin, we all do, but you're not a sinner anymore. Such were some of you, you're not anymore. What you, were now, what you were then is not what you are now. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You're not guilty. You stand before the Father with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Mosaic law couldn't do that. The cross did that. Praise God for that. Which is why 1 John 1, 7 says the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from all sin. Keeps on cleansing us. That blood continues to cleanse. The blood continues to cleanse. All right, next week we'll return and we'll deal with verses 3 and 4. The reminders. The reminders. Reminders and forgetters. Because God is a forgetter and we want to be forgetters in, uh, in the sin. Thank you, Father, for truth. Thank you for the book of Hebrews. Thank you for the contrast of Old Testament, New Testament saints. And thank you now for the fulfillment. Thank you now, Father, that when Jesus rose... He brought captivity captive. He took every Old Testament saint from the the compartment of Abraham's bosom and he transferred that compartment. Paradise is now in in the third heaven. Paradise is not in Sheol anymore, Father, and I thank you for that. I thank you for the blessings that now, apart from us, they would not be made perfect. They are made perfect. They are now in the heavenly places awaiting their own resurrection. Uh, what What a glory, what a joy. Thank you for these things, Father. Thank you for this day and the blessing we have to, uh, to study and to grow. And I pray that we would really wrap our minds around what it means to no longer have a conscious awareness of sin. Father, get us to the point that we're so focused on Christ that uh, sin itself is in the darkest corner of the back of our mind and rarely uh, do we even think about it. Rarely do we remember it. And occasionally when our sin nature reminds us, let's just just throw grace right back at it and and keep fixing our eyes on Jesus. So Father, uh, it's an important class. I hope we learn it and hope we live it. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.